I mean, we do have funding, but probably not enough to pay for that. What if I just um, sang it? What if we played it like an octave higher and a little bit faster like they do on YouTube? I could just hum it. No. Um, oh, I would sod it. Welcome to the Verbal Remedy podcast. If you haven't heard of Verbal Remedy before, we're a petition signing taboo tackling blog project from the UK. And our aim is to tackle tough issues through various multimedia projects. There are hundreds of posts to sink your teeth into over on our website, which is verbalremedy.co.uk. The idea behind our podcast is simple. Over five episodes, we ask our authors and some special guests to get together and discuss issues that mean a lot to them and stories coming up in the media. Today's theme, finding your voice. A couple of years ago, I did some work for the BBC and met Vicky Sparks, a news presenter and sports commentator who recently made history and headlines by becoming the first woman to commentate a World Cup match broadcast live on terrestrial TV. She lives up to her name, sparky, energetic, enthusiastic and more than qualified for the job. Unfortunately, some people, mainly men, have dragged their knuckles up from the floor long enough to tweet abuse at Vicky or comment on Daily Mail articles about her. Of course, if a new alien life form asked me for examples of the plunging depths of human stupidity, Twitter and the comments section of a tabloid newspaper are 100% where I would point them. But I can't imagine how it would feel for somebody who lives and breathes their sport to be publicly vilified like this. Thick skin or not, it's going to hurt like hell. This isn't the first time Sparks has had sexist abuse aimed at her for simply doing her job. In 2017, the then Sunderland manager David Moyes was fined 30 grand by the FA for improper and threatening comments to her during a post-match interview. Her treatment, along with what veteran presenters like Sue Barker and Claire Balding receive, as well as much of the day commentator Jackie Oatley and many others, shines a light on the prejudice that's still alive and kicking in the so-called beautiful game. Not that the trolls need it, but is there actually any science behind the way we interpret male and female voices? Well, there is a bit, but the research cited in most of those clickbait articles claiming that husbands have a hard time listening to their wives is not only over a decade old, but boasted a sample size of a whopping 12 people. With that in mind, one can safely assume that there isn't a decibel range that makes it easier for men to learn to leave the toilet seat down. What the online trolls are objecting to is the idea that women like Vicky Sparks could be talented enough to commentate on the World Cup and that no man was free to take her place. 
The glass ceiling that stops women reaching their full potential is much bigger than St Petersburg Stadium. It stretches across pretty much every industry and discipline. Finding your voice is particularly important for those who feel like they're always getting talked over or even shouted down. And for those of us who are already being heard, now's the time to shut up and listen. For almost as long as Verbal Remedy has been around, I've had a friend called Errol. He's autistic and disabled and navigates these two complex identities while tirelessly and fearlessly educating people about them in whatever way he can. In this piece, Errol talks about the difficulties faced by himself and many others when they call for better representation of their communities. I have a confession to make. Now, but until the last few years, I wasn't fully accepting of the fact I was autistic. And in reality, I've still been trying to work against it, even up until recently. Now, this isn't something necessarily conscious. This is something I've been taught for many, many years. I was never expected to get through school. I was never expected to get to a point where I'd move out of home, hold down friendships, relationships, a job. Of course, all of these aren't necessarily true. However, it's something that haunts you, whether you like it or not. It's something that keeps coming back. Every time you can't manage a job interview, every time you cock up in a conversation with a friend or a colleague and you think, maybe I can't make friends, you know, other than the several friends that I do have, because brains don't work logically, do they? Unfortunately, being autistic lends itself towards those anxious thoughts, and the way that you're brought up as an autistic person lends itself to self-loathing, really. And that's nothing to do with the fact that I am autistic. It's the fact that as I was brought up, not only was I never given a voice, I was taught, again, whether consciously or subconsciously, that having a voice was dangerous. That having a voice was damaging. Many years down the line, I realized they weren't scared of the damage I would do to myself. More fearful of me speaking out, more fearful of me gaining a voice and speaking against individuals who had wronged me, really. And I mean, I did just that. As soon as I found my footing, as soon as I found my voice, I spoke up against individuals who had done me wrong, who had denied me support. And that was almost taken from me by the fact that I spoke out. And that in itself, at age 16, 
isn't something you want to experience and is something that lives with you. The fact that when you are autistic and have been through systems such as the education system, you're in a catch-22. If you find your voice, then you don't need help anymore. Then you don't need supervision, then you don't need support, because as soon as you can communicate, you're fine. But if you don't find that voice, you'll be ignored. Your supports won't be met. Your needs invalidated. And if you have that voice and choose to not use it in fear of the very real situations of, oh, he's just fine, then you're back at square one. I wonder how many other autistic children have had to sit there and make that decision, have had to sit and decide whether, do I speak up? Because if I do, then things might be taken from me. Your voice is used against you. Your capabilities are used against you. The fact I can sit and talk into a microphone right now could be used against me. The fact that I'm vocal about my autism, that we are a community, is used against us by those who do not understand, by those who are unwilling to understand. Finding your voice is a constant process, because once you have found it, you have to fight for it, and you have to justify it. You have to justify your existence, even when you have clarified that you exist, even when they know, even when people are aware. The fact that they're aware doesn't mean they want to listen. interview for this podcast is an absolute cracker. Ever since meeting comedian and mental health advocate Dave Chawner at a conference a few years ago, I've been astounded by the way he can find the humour in the macabre, breaking down taboos while making people physically hurt from laughing so much. It's as if he was born to be a part of Verbal Remedy. So he's now published his first book called Weight Expectations, which chronicles his journey through treatment for anorexia. So we caught up for a chat on the phone, and hilarity ensued. I'm lost in the night. So, for people that don't know you, can you give us just a little bit of background about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I think like that's pretty much everyone. Uh, doesn't really know me, and and so basically, I'm. Uh, <laughs> don't sell yourself. To be honest, though, you can't polish a turd, though, can you? This is the. <laughs> That's the reality of it. Um, but basically, yeah, I'm a stand-up comic uh, presenter. And now, uh, as of, like, exactly seven days, uh, an author, uh, kind of, like... Woo-hoo. And it's so exciting. So, basically, all of the stuff that I've always done has always been about uh, anorexia. I had anorexia when I was 17 and kind of, like, had that and sort of done shows on it and mental health, etc. And just released a book. Um, I originally wanted to call it The Real Hunger Games... Uh, but I wasn't allowed, so I've had to call it weight Damn. expectations. It's just not as good. It's just not as good. I don't care how. No, um, but 
Dickens has, has been dead for a long time, so I think he's probably uh, <laughs> yeah. a bit easier to Yeah, a little less hot on heels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Less, less indictment possibility. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and was mental health something that you always thought that you were going to cover in your stand-up, or did it come a little bit more, like, randomly? I guess in terms of, like, stand-up, uh, so I got into stand-up because I was, I was just, like, I remember I used to go to this, like, comedy club at university, and we saw these incredible people, like, we saw Chris Addison, we saw Russell Howard, we saw Michael McIntyre, all these people before they were big, and yeah. it wasn't, like, it genuinely wasn't the fame that got me, because that was when comedy started to get sexy, and Love of the Apollo came around, <laughs> Mock the Week, and everyone was like, oh, it's, like, the new rock and roll. It wasn't that that got me. The thing that really got me about stand-up was these people's ability to cope so when you know sort of you watch things like Frankie Boyle that was a way of him sort of uh, you know making it okay that Scotland was rubbish and you know when <laughs> Michael McIntyre was on set he was talking about being this camp effeminate guy that was like the outsider Alan Carr was talking about being a game it was all just like they were coping with things that otherwise could be really really difficult to deal with and I was really jealous of that and I was like oh my god imagine if I could use that in order to actually sort of tackle stuff and actually sort of yeah. make it more palatable um, and I suppose at that time yeah I was kind of like dipping in and out of the anorexia I was becoming you know, sort of more and less of anorexic and I think it's always been something that I've wanted to do um, but yeah I suppose like as time's gone on I've gone got increasingly more interested in using comedy as a tool to make things more approachable Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because I wonder, it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario in terms of do you start doing comedy and yeah. speaking about mental health for your own benefit at first and the upshot is that you also benefit other people? Yeah. Or do you do it in order to help other people and then the upshot is that you actually improve your own mental health as well? I think, yeah, I think, like, people get into comedy for different reasons. Like I say, around sort of the mid-2000s, there was a lot of skinny jean-wearing, floppy-haired people called Russell, Russell Howard, Russell Kane, Russell Brown, you know? And it kind of felt if you weren't a Russell, then you wouldn't really get anywhere. And I know a lot of people kind of thought it was a beeline to getting into people's pants. The thing that I really quite enjoyed about it as I was studying philosophy at the time it was just a way to kind of essentially analyze things and sort of get lost up my own bottom why my own self-importance you know it was a way to actually break stuff down Uh, and actually as well on that like I did a bit in the last show about how I honestly think philosophers are some of the funniest people that I've ever met and some of the funniest people I've ever read about because they see through the veil of the world which is just mental nonsense and they kind of think well you're only here for a short time let's crack on let's have a bit of a laugh yeah but I think in terms of mental health and comedy it's always been something that's so bleak it's always been something that's had a certain tone attached to it when I was young I remember Stephen Fry did a documentary about his bipolar and I remember everyone was talking about it at school the next day and I remember it's a fantastic documentary but it was really sad and it was followed up with things like Panorama things like Dispatches Mm -hmm. all of these head clutcher photos and to be honest that found the anorexia really difficult to relate to for me because what I was doing was fun what I was doing was my own little game and to actually see people that were just constantly going oh it's terrible being me I was like I don't want 
that i don't want to be associated with that and yeah one in four of us have mental illness but four in four of us have mental health and nobody talked to me about mental health no one told me that's something that i could very validly have people were always so scared that i might have a mental illness that we kind of completely overlooked well-being in order to try and stop me getting to crisis point rather than starting to tick along and that's really really key isn't it this whole thing that we only talk about mental health when it's in an in a bad way yeah and i feel like as somebody that has done Vero Remedy now for five years and has also become a corporate sellout at the same time, working <laughs> for the man and getting the metro in every day and sitting at a desk with photos of people and all of that stuff. And you become indoctrinated into this this life where the only conversations you have about mental health are when somebody's off sick for yeah. stress or when somebody's, you know, it's very much a negative conversation if if ever yeah so it's refreshing to hear somebody who has for want of a better word suffered from the same Mm. things but wants to shed a a positive and everyday light on it and it's also like not not, it's not entirely selfless either because like (laughs) mental health is something that i am incredibly passionate about but i've spent the past sort of five years doing the advocacy and the stand-up work and and i'm bored of hearing all about people you know what i mean and i'm like every now and then it'll be nice to just read an article that's kind of funny or uplifting or positive but it seems like we're caught between two camps and one camp is saying oh this is terrible this is my down and out moment this is awful this is my sob story and then the other camp is on the completely other side and kind of like yeah life's all about a journey and it's all of these really annoying little phrases and like trinkets and fridge magnets exactly I don't kind of like. Yeah. I don't. I don't associate with either of that. It's kind of like watching. Yeah. It's kind of like watching sexism. And on the one side, there's one guy who going, "Look, if women look nice, I should be able to say it." And then on the <laughs> other side, a kind of camp of people going, "Like, no, you should never look at someone ever." <laughs> you know, it just seems so yeah. extreme on both sides. And I actually think that people don't change by being lectured at and people don't care by just being told what to think and told what to do people learn by having fun and if you can make mental health fun then everybody wins because the people that have experience of it will hopefully get better the people that have no experience of it ever at all will actually learn something that could potentially hold them back and stop them getting ill absolutely and it's the everydayness of it i think important Mm. to portray mental health as not this huge thing that we hide from this huge thing that affects us you know like i have anxiety and depression and and have been on medication and things since 2012 i think Mm. and the reality is is that i've been able to do everything that i could have wanted in those last you know six years and but also the reality is sometimes quite funny and having a big hysterical panic attack and then eating cheesy chips like half an hour later because <laughs> life goes on yeah. you know it's it's not the stock image of everybody you know sitting on cliff faces crying and you know yeah. sometimes you've just got to have a little meltdown and then carry on eating your cheesy chips because yeah. that's life we live in a culture where we're told to stop bad feelings Someone, yes. a very good friend of mine was like crying and I was like oh don't be sad and I was like no who who am I to tell you what to yeah. be 
And I think that's incredibly exactly. harmful. And the implications behind that are saying that feeling these bad things is bad itself, which is obviously absurd. Yeah, and it just doesn't work anyway because they, you just push it further down. Mm. And then it'll, it'll always resurface at some point. And you can guarantee that the resurfacing will be more inconvenient and in a more <laughs> open public setting than it was when you yeah. wanted to cry in the first place yeah it's like no i won't cry in my bed this morning but i will cry at the bus stop at 5 47 <laughs> yeah. it's like no we've just gotta yeah i'm totally in your camp i think expressing emotion but then also knowing when to get out of the pity pool when you've yeah. finished yeah is, is super important definitely so what are some of the like best like your favourite achievements not necessarily like the most there's a fucking huge seagull like screaming <laughs> and I think this is one of the most quiet I places someone... I could have gone I think someone was being murdered I don't lie I was like right. oh god this is you know you're there's doing this no murdering yeah. it's just me and the seagull great um, come on what are your favourite achievements not necessarily your most like biggest or your things that made you the most cash like what are you most most proud of of your, of your career I don't, uh, to be honest, that's a really difficult question for me to answer because, like, I'm trying to get better at the idea of pride um, because, like, uh-huh. I've always... <laughs> that's a mess. <laughs> I mean, you're definitely in a Hitchcock film right like, now. what the fuck is going on? I'm always really worried about being arrogant and especially in, like, an industry where it is just you standing on stage not letting anyone else talk. It's very hard to be humble in that sense. But I think there's there's little things that really, really get you. And there's things that, like, yeah, I, I quite, in, you know, sort of enjoy the TED Talk. I'm really excited that the book's coming out. But honestly, the thing that most people won't tell you is that, like, people get really scared after gigs to just come up and talk to you. And actually... Yeah without being egotistical about it i think everybody likes to be told they're doing a good job and over the past week i've had like i had an email from new zealand because apparently the book was in their national press and someone got in touch and stuff, which is so lovely and then there's a girl from uh america who wanted a signed copy and then there was a girl in switzerland who was asking for her sister how she could get more help and it's it's not it, honestly, and I genuinely mean this, it's not about being like, oh yeah, I'm a celebrity, because I never got into this to be a celebrity. If I wanted to be splashed all over the TV, then I'd go and do some reality TV stuff. What I really <laughs> wanted to do is like, to be that influence that I wanted. So actually, that's what makes me really happy. And when people come up to me after gigs and sort of say, oh, I really like that bit that you said, or, you know, I, I'll never forget one of the most heart-wrenching things was a girl that came up to me after the first year that I did Edinburgh and she was like just crying and she was like I've got down to a dangerously low BMI they're threatening me with going an inpatient I was really not in a good space of mind um but you know four weeks ago I tried to kill myself uh but I think you know I think it's okay like I am gonna engage with therapy now and I was like well like that was just insane but i always get worried about saying stuff like that as well because then it sounds about like i'm trying to paint myself as some sort of new christ-like figure and i'm gonna be like <laughs> going up and down the m1 with a cross attached to my back that, 
the point is stories are actually more important than the people that they happen yes. to and this isn't about trying to self-promote me this whole thing is really actually about guilt and guilt driving me <laughs> to like actually try and be what i needed to be and what i needed to hear and what i needed to do when i was 17 before i got into yeah. all of this and dragged everyone down with me all it says in the front cover of the book is to mom, dad and Ruth, who's my sister, I'm sorry. Just purely because I'm so <laughs> stubborn, I can't say that to their faces. And there's Aww. stuff in the book that I've put in because I don't want to tell my mom and dad about the like explicit stuff. I don't want it. Like, so if they want to, they can read it or they can be like, mm, we're going to skip this page. Um, so, yeah. yeah. How did you find the, that process of writing it down rather than kicking it? I know you're meant to say in the process of writing a book is really cathartic and it was really lovely and oh my god I just found myself I hated it I absolutely hated it <laughs> I have so much respect for writers now never do it never do it that's my advice <laughs> if you're thinking of writing a book don't just put the pen down but you know even and that's leave. even that's worse because it sounds like I'm trying to kill off the competition but I'm absolutely <laughs> not it is just you just wouldn't anyone else through no. the process that you have just done. Oh, some of them terrible. <laughs> Even when I wrote the article for the, well, for, I, I did one for the Telegraph, which was strangely lovely. I, I managed to call yeah. Jeremy Hunt a C-U-N-T in it. Brilliant. But the, wow. the one for the Metro, there was so many, there were like 17 drafts. And in the end of it, I was like, I just want to be shot of this. I'm not a writer. <laughs> I'm not good at it. Because um, my way of like communicating is just, chuck enough poo and some of it will stick whereas you can't really do that when you're writing things down because people want it to be ordered in that those quotes are down there forever yeah i know and there's some bad ones as well you know (laughs) i remember there's one bit in the book where i talk about the relationship with my body image and anorexia which is always a sticking point because you there's either two things that people think that it's a vanity project gone wrong or they think that you're instantly going to come out and say that social media created anorexia social media didn't create anorexia like blaming social media for anorexia is like blaming damien rice for depression right it's just it's (laughs) not true but it doesn't help either and i would be lying if i said that it wasn't uh, you know there was absolutely no strand whatsoever of aesthetic to do with the Mm -hmm. anorexia however that genuinely as i can believe it was not the midpoint for me it wasn't about trying to look sexy it was actually trying about blend in and when i see people at school being like fat shamed and trolled and this one guy like having his belly slapped and everyone sort of saying whale time when he got into pe that taught me when i was a impressionable teen right if you want to stand out then you're bigger if you want to Mm. fit in you slim down but that wasn't the main motivation. That wasn't the only motivation. But I think it was naive to overlook that. So I wrote, I reread that and rewrote that and reworded that so many times. If it makes sense now, it's it's amazing. There must feel like a fair amount of um, responsibility. And I know that comedians and, and writers as well, like Kathleen Moran has always said mm. that she feels very, like the weight of... of the world especially of young girls and the people that read her stuff it 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 does feel quite daunting and i know we talk a lot especially for activists and for people that speak about mental health and disability and other issues that you can get compassion fatigue like you can feel like you're carrying the weight of this whole issue on on your shoulders and Mm. as our as our theme for the podcast is kind of finding your voice and 
I just wonder if you ever wished that you did have a little bit more of an, an invisible experience and that you could quietly kind of seek help and, and deal with these issues without having to, to do it in the public eye. Oh, I'm quite lucky because no one knows who I am. So I think that like, <laughs> anonymity is is fine. I mean, I don't think that's a problem. I, I think that comedy genuinely helped me find my voice for just mm-hmm. so many different areas because one of the things that I loved about stand-up is I, I sort of teach it a bit and one of the most important things is finding your voice, having your voice. So, for example, you've probably got an idea about how Jimmy Carr feels about football in the same way mm-hmm. that you've probably got an idea about how Frankie Boyle feels about Cordon Bleu cookery. It's that <laughs> passion. It's about having an identity and i think that that comedy really helped me find my voice what's my angle on this but also one of the things that mental illness massively does to me is it makes me take things too seriously and that's the worst Mm -hmm. version of myself when i'm looking at the minutiae and getting frustrated and anger is that outlet that comes out of it and actually if i can harness that anger bundle it up and wrap it up in silliness and make it farcical then i just find it incredible that comedy can make something that you're running away from so incredible and you actually start running to it and start looking at ridiculous situations and sensationalistic things that people have said and i just think that if something tragic happens and i can see the funny side of it then yeah that's that's incredible to me it's hard for me to do so actually trying to find things funny is a discipline and in trying to work out that discipline that's kind of how i found my voice of like yeah you know this is the best version of me and i honestly think that finding things funny when i'm approaching stuff in a fun funny and silly way that is the best version of me so that's kind of what's helped me find my voice Uh, obviously we've established that you're never writing another book no Um, never so this will soon become a limited edition uh, (laughs) um, book it will be on ebay for hundreds of pounds because you'll never pen anything else ever again um so what next (laughs) i think the future is always so uncertain and honestly that's what i kind of find scary about this book coming out because i've been focusing on this for so long then it's Mm -hmm. almost like i forgot life carries on afterwards and there are some really exciting projects i'm working on i've just got funding to go in to uh inpatient units and eating disorder units in order to teach comedy stand-up comedy for people in order to find their own voice but also to help them recover so i'm really passionate and excited uh about that i've got the new show which is all about mental health rather than mental illness and kind of looking at exploring what do people mean by stigma what do people mean when they say just talk and actually give tangible everyday coping mechanisms within that and showing a lot of the guff that we have around psychology society and stupidity so i'm really excited about that but after edinburgh i've got to be honest the the slate is pretty much clean i would love (laughs) to tour it i would love to go around but i honestly don't know and for the first time in ages i haven't got anything planned and i'm strangely 
okay with that. And that either means that I'm getting incredibly lazy or I'm just kind of getting used to just being. But yeah, I honestly don't know what the future holds apart from probably mounting debts and an increasing... (laughs) An increasing lenience towards the right wing, because that's how age works. <laughs> well, there's at least four seasons of Love Island on Netflix now. So, oh, brilliant. Um, there you go. You can just watch that. That's... That'll do your uh, eating disorder a world of <laughs> watching the... Uh... It's this weird, pervasive thing that even though I don't care about it, it still pops up on every timeline, every tweet, everything oh, that I have. It's odd. If you if you took a kind of cross section of the things that I do and the things that I like and the things that I'm active in, and then you also put that alongside my very furtive but strong love for Love Island, <laughs> you, yeah, you'd be quite just really yeah. confused by the whole thing. Exactly. But, hey, what can I say? It, it just gets to us all day. We can't. Yeah, can't that's stop it. The force of Love Island. No, I, that is honestly how it feels. It's like the Death Star. Yeah. It's gonna get you. You might as well give yeah. in sooner or later. Exactly. So that'll take a good few weeks of your right. September. Yeah. And, and then I'll just um, watch Mrs. Doubtfire back to back. Well, come back. Come and talk to us again. I would love podcast. to. That'd and, be great. Um, tell us about how your summer went. How the new show went. And yeah. um, I just wish you so much luck with the oh, book. I know it you, sounds man. like it's already doing amazingly well. I've just never, <laughs> ever found such a loud, quiet place in my whole life. Great. I mean, that is that is Absolutely. my happy place. There's seagulls trying to have sex. There's yes. police. It's all chaotic. <laughs> If ever there was a better metaphor for what the inside of someone's mind is truly like, I think that's, you're never going to beat that. No, we've all learned something today, we I have. Kerr wrote and read his own piece about the representation of disabled and neurodiverse communities. You can purchase Dave Chawner's book Weight Expectations in paper or ebook form from Amazon, Waterstones, Foils and all other decent bookshops. And finally, a special thank you to Sunderland Software City who have sponsored all of our podcasts this year. You can find out more about them by visiting sunderlandsoftwarecity.com. <laughs>